<laughs> I've chosen to preach from the book of Job for you this morning, and so I'm going to read a number of verses from the first chapter and the second chapter, as well as the 23rd chapter. I invite you to hear these words. There was once a man in the land of Oz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. One day the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still persists in his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him for no reason. Then Satan answered the Lord, Skin for skin, all that people have they will give to save their lives. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well, he is in your power, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and inflicted loathsome sores on Job from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Job took a pot shred from which to scrape himself and sat among the ashes. Then Job's wife said to him, Do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job said to her, you speak as any foolish woman would speak. Shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not also receive the bad? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you join your hearts with me in prayer? Dear God, may the words of my mouth and the reflections of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our sight, and our strength, and our Redeemer. Amen. I'm not giving up. I'm standing my ground. It isn't fair. There's no reason for God to treat me this way. If I knew where to find him, I'd go to him face to face. I'd lay out my claims before him, complaints before him, and tell him what I'm thinking. I'd find out exactly what it is he's thinking, what's going on in his head. Do you think he would listen? Do you think he would dismiss me or bully me? No. He'd pay attention. He'd surely listen when I speak, and he'd find standing before him an upright individual. And of all complaints and all things, he would forgive me and see me as righteous once and for all. And yet I go forward, and he is not there. Backwards, and I cannot find him. On the left, he hides, and I cannot see his face. I turn to the right, but still I catch no glimpse of him. Oh, that God has made my heart faint. Whose voice do I betray? 
It is the lament, the voice of Job, in the 23rd chapter, which I did not yet read for you. The story of Job is the story of a man who loved God, who followed God's commandments, who had a kind heart, who was a good father and a good husband, who was a loyal friend and a courteous neighbor, but a man who one day lost his cattle, his sheep, his donkeys, his camels, and all of his servants, and who not long after was covered with leprosy and forced to leave his family and his home. Yet while the voice I portrayed is the voice of Job, could it not be the voice of Sue, a teenager born into a happy home in a well-to-do neighborhood with a mother and father who loves her, who was voted the most popular in her sophomore class, president of the student council, team captain of the basketball team, and secretary of her youth group. A teenager who one night is raped and then assaulted after a party by a young man who offered to walk her home. Or could the words be the voice of Bill, a young boy the age of four, who has a smile on his face that would melt the coldest of hearts, who's eager to please and quick to obey, who gives the most wonderful hugs and seems to know just what to say to brighten your day. But a young boy who has not eaten a warm meal in several days, who does not know what it's like to sleep a full night without fear, but rather sits in his bed at night with the covers pulled over his head waiting. One o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock waiting for the screaming and the slapping to stop, hoping that this time the drunken stupor will come before the screaming and hitting makes its way to his bedroom. Or could it be Ted and Judy, a young couple fully committed to one another, expecting their first child, who've waited for the perfect time and planned carefully, who followed the book, the correct diet, plenty of exercise, no drinking, learning to do meditation and relaxation, but who has learned, who has just given birth to a five-pound Down syndrome baby with so many birth defects, the doctor says it will not see its sixth birthday, who share the same delivery room with a young, unwed crack addict who's given birth to an eight-pound healthy boy. Or could it be John? who spent 40 years taking care of people, who as a doctor worked long hours knowing many sleepless nights and suffered much time away from family and friends, who in spite of his hectic schedule and the physical strain, not to mention the emotional strain, has always made time to listen to and comfort his hurting and frightened patients, who looks forward to traveling with his wife and spending well-deserved time playing with his grandchildren, but who just two weeks after retirement discovers he has inoperable stomach cancer and is given less th than three months to live. Or how about us? Few of us, perhaps, have ever experienced the kind of compound tragedy that Job endures in today's scripture. 
But at some point in our lives, all of us have experiences that bring us emotional and physical pain that doesn't necessarily fit our understanding of how things should work. It might be the sudden death of a loved one, an unexpected illness, a huge financial setback, the loss of a valued friendship. It might be helplessly standing by and watching a loved one suffer in their last days, months, or even years. These kinds of experiences often leave us stunned. They drain us of our energy. They leave us feeling anxious or depressed or with little sense of hope, vision, or desire to go on. They lead us to question our beliefs and how it is that things really do work. They may even lead us to wonder what we did to deserve the pain or the suffering, the same kinds of questions that Job's friends asked. And we may be inclined to respond by withdrawing or giving up or refusing to trust in anything or anyone, becoming cynical like Job's wife did. Perhaps in those times we question and wonder, where is God? Or is God? Perhaps we wish we could hear God's voice, but experience only silence. This is where Job was in today's text. And like Job, whenever we find ourselves in these kinds of experiences, are we not inclined to cry out in our anger and in our pain and our confusion, Where are you, God? Where is God when it hurts? Now, I know that some would say, oh, no, Lisa, I never get angry or challenge God. Why, that would be blasphemy. That would be lack of faith. But I find myself asking the question, and I think the book of Job challenges us to ask such questions. Is it blasphemy or lack of faith to challenge and be angry with God? Or might lack of faith or blasphemy be the pious, false acts of silent suffering that we sometimes engage in in the name of being strong, when inside our heart is actually bleeding and crying out? I would like to suggest to you that in times of pain and suffering, it is natural to cry out, to pour out our hearts before God and to ask the difficult questions, why? And when we're able to do that and when we're honest about the feelings, the questions that we're inclined to ask are things is, what is it that I've done to deserve this? Or what is it I can do to get God to listen and turn the tables for me and hear my prayer? And yet, when it seems that some people's prayers are heard and others are not, we might be further inclined to ask the question, why does God choose to work miracles for some and not for others? But as I reflect on it, I wonder, Is taking away our pain, healing the disease, or relieving the suffer the real miracle? Or might the miracle be when in our grief we come to recognize that God is present 
acting in ways that are good and life-giving, whether it's birth or death, joy or sorrow, healing or destruction. It is also true, perhaps, that in our crying out, we might question the seeming unfairness of it all. Why do some seem to get more than their share of heartache and suffering? Or why does God seem to favor some and forget others? Or why don't others get what they have coming to them? But I find myself wondering again, is it the seeming injustice that needs to be challenged? Or does perhaps the challenge need to be our understanding of reward and punishment, good and bad, fair and unfair, that keeps us from allowing God to love us just as we are and experience what real grace is? Now, I can imagine that at this moment you might be saying to yourself, wait a minute, aren't we back full circle? If God loves me just the way I am, and God is so grace-giving, then why doesn't God answer my cry? And I have to ask the question again. Does God not answer our cries? Or is it our ears are tuned only into one channel? Are we tuned in only to what we want to hear? So that too often our pain is seen as a measurement of our weakness or of someone's wrongdoing or of a deficiency or even something to be avoided. Rather than allowing ourselves to see pain and suffering as part of life. When we see pain and suffering as a part of life, instead of an unfairness or something that we deserve or someone else deserves, then we might be allowed to let pain and suffering become life-giving and transcending. How do we do that? I know that for myself, the phone call I received over 15 years ago at 5 o'clock in the morning was one of my Job experiences. The last time I had received a call in such wee hours of the morning, it had happened just a year and a half earlier. And at that time, the call was from my mother to tell me that my 21-year-old brother had died suddenly of a brain aneurysm. On this particular morning, the call was from my brother. My father had awakened to discover that my mom now had died in her sleep next to him with an unknown blood clot that went to her heart. Like Job, I found it difficult to accept and even more difficult to understand. And I wanted a hearing with God. I wanted to fire my protest and plead my case and question the logic and even the fairness of it. But in all my pleading and in all my prayers and all my bargaining and all my searching and all the silence that led me to cry out, Oh, that God has made my heart faint. Where is God when it hurts? I became despondent. As I moved through the funeral home visitation, the funeral and the weeks and months that followed, there were many who tried to help me with where God was, to explain why it was I was suffering and tell me what I needed to do. 
There were people who, like Job's friends, tried to help me by suggesting that maybe it was because my mother was taking, not taking good enough care of herself that she should have gone to the doctor. Others told me that it was okay that God had things in control and he had a better plan for all of us. And there were others who assured me that because I was a minister and understood my mom was in a better place, I wasn't going to suffer or feel sad. I know those words were well-intentioned and meant to offer comfort and assurance and move me forward. But for me, they were pious platitudes, and they served only to intensify my pain. It gave me the opportunity to realize how often I have found myself guilty of trying to offer unhelpful answers to someone else's pain. I'm quite sure that often the driving force between, behind our attempt to do that is because we're uncomfortable with the pain ourselves and we don't like to feel it. But then there was Helen. Helen was one of my mother's best friends, a friend my mother had seen since I was a young adolescent. Only about a year after my mother and Helen met, Helen lost her seven-year-old son in a tractor accident. When the news arrived to Helen's house that my mother had died, she went to my father's house and was there almost before I could get there. When she got there, she greeted me with tears in her eyes, drew her arms and hugged me in tight. And after a moment, she let me go and she said, when Matthew, my son, died, your mom came. She didn't have any answers. There wasn't anything she could do. She just came, stayed with me, shared my tears, listened to my anger, helped me voice my questions, and sat with me in my silence. I want you to know that I intend to give that same gift back to you and your family. In the months that followed as I moved through my own grief, I discovered that where God is when it hurts is not so much a question to be answered as it is one to be experienced. Where is God when it hurts? Studies have revealed that when visitors come to a church, more often than not, they come seeking the answer to that question. They may not voice it that way. They may not have had a tragic loss or been diagnosed with a serious illness or lost their job or their home. The hurting may not even be physical. It may well be emotional or a spiritual searching for some sort of hunger they can't identify. Yet people who visit, more than not, are people who are in a transitional period in their life where they are searching for answers to what is missing in their life, for where God is when it hurts. When you break bread on the Sundays in which you celebrate communion, you pray over that bread and juice and and if your liturgy is anything like our liturgy and our tradition, you say something like, make them be for us the body and the blood of Christ that we may be the world's body in Christ. 
My friends, I am convinced that at the heart, that is what the church is all about. It's not about building a beautiful building. It's not about the latest technology or the biggest piano or music system or endowment. It's not about being able to teach or provide all the answers to the questions of why or how. It's not about putting on a pious act. It's not about demonstrating who has the most faith or how strong you can be in times of crisis, or even who's the most well-versed in the Bible, or gives the most leadership or financial support. Being the church is about people coming together, sharing their Job experiences with one another, and experiencing the incarnational love and grace of God as they struggle together with where God is when it hurts. I know that over the last 30 years, that is what has made church something that I have had any interest of being a pastor with. It is the passion that I seek even as I live out my call now in extension ministry as a counselor and director of a pastoral counseling center. And I am convinced that it ought to be our main focus and mission as a church universal. And unless it is, I'm afraid we're missing the boat. I'm convinced that membership in churches will continue to decline and more and more people will seek answers to those questions in different ways and different places. And so this morning, as we all grapple with where God is when it hurts, won't we join together in seeing that as the mission and the ministry that all of us are called to live out as disciples of Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen. As we continue in worship, I'll invite our ushers forward to receive our morning offering. This is the time where we continue worshiping by giving back just a portion of what it is that God has blessed us with. It's an acknowledgement that it has come from him and not from our own doing. If you did take some time to fill out that welcome card, 